Good morning. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We continue our, our path through Acts, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. A couple of comments. I want to th- uh, just really am um, energized by the, uh, the ministry of the worship team this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, this has been a tough week for me. A lot of travel, uh, a, lot of, a lot of states, and I had a birthday, I had a, grand, a grandson born, I had a granddaughter graduate, uh, lot, lots, of, lots of activity, and, and I'm tired. And I know some of you are tired as well, whether it be from travels or, or from this restful summer that's just begun. But you, know, you come into church and you're supposed to be prepared for worship, and oftentimes you're not. And this morning I came in and it was just the, 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 from the prayer of Krista to the, the, the songs and the, the responsive readings, I'm going to be honest with you, everything I'm going to say has already been said. Uh, either been said from a prayer or said in, in the songs, or you've all said it in the responsive readings. So I'm just incredibly energized. I mean, I, I got goosebumps in the first, the first uh, service, and I got goosebumps in the second service as well. So I, I'm being authentic and saying, you know, I just, I'm thankful for our worship team and at least the ministry to me and today especially in, pre- in preparation. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm here just filling in for the, for the Sunday while uh, Joe's going in, in New Orleans. Uh, I'm humbled to be here as one of, as one of your congregation, uh, but I'm particularly humbled because of the topic we're going to be talking about, because I believe I'm talking to a group of Berean-type believers, and that's going to be the question, are you Berean? And we'll, we'll develop that, but you are a congregation that is careful in your consideration of the scriptures and is submissive, I believe, to the scriptures, at least in my experience. And so I am, I'm humbled to, to, to be in front of you this morning. So with that, let's go to Acts chapter 17, and we are going to uh, plop down in verse 10. Now remember last week, Joe's message on, you know, we had the messages on Philippi, then they went, the, uh, the, the gospel team without Luke went to Thessalonica. They ministered for at least three Sundays, probably more, uh, in the synagogue. And we know that it had mixed results. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Eventually, the, the, the Jews become envious. They become angry. They become violent. And the, Paul has to flee, and, the, the, and the, the team flees by night. They go to Berea. And that's where we pick up this story as the, 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 the missionary team is in Berea. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful to you that you are there, that you hear our prayers, and that you have given us your words that we might have life and that we might be guided 
and that we might be corrected and that we might be comforted. We're thankful for your word. We pray this morning that you would comfort us if we need comforting, that you would reprove us if you need reprove, if we need reproving, that you would instruct us if we need instructing, and that your spirit would wield the sword of your word and would, would meet our needs this day in the congregation as we gather around your word. We're submissive to your word today in, in Jesus' name. Amen. We typically celebrate Reformation Sunday on the 31st of October or the last Sunday in October, and we're commemorating Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses on the, on the, um, the door in Wittenberg, Germany, his call to debate. But in Luther's life, that really wasn't the pivotal, pivotal moment. The pivotal moment was four years later, on April 18, 1521. Luther experienced what was probably the most dangerous moment of his life. He'd been asked to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, the Spaniard, Charles V, at the imperial parliament, the Diet, that had been called to meet at Worms, which was situated on the upper Rhine about, Rhine, about 40 miles south of Frankfurt. And on April 18, 1521, Luther stood at the Diet of Worms, and he was pressed to, re to renounce his writings and to recant everything he had said. Now, if you remember that scene, if you know much about that scene, you know that Luther immediately kind of balks, right? Immediately, he's overcome, and he is hesitant, and he asks for 24 hours. And then he comes back to meet before the Diet. Now, I think, I, I believe that the reason that Luther does that is probably a couple of fold. Number one, it's a huge emotional moment. And he's at fear for his life. But the real big deal for Luther was he saw himself as a reformer within the church. He saw himself as a voice within the church. And he realized that at the Diet of Worms, what was going to happen is that he was going to be excommunicated. And that means he's going to be put outside the church, outside the salvation, outside God's people. And he realizes the gravity of that, going from reformer to being excommunicated. And it's a big deal. And it should be a big deal, right? Getting kicked out of a church is a big deal. And so this is church discipline happening, and he's, he's, very, he's very apprehensive about that. It's a big deal in his thinking. But secondly, I really believe that what Luther's, Luther still has the hope that somebody will actually read his writings and that somebody will look at his handling of the scripture and somebody will dialogue with him about his interpretations of the scripture. He still thinks that all of this church, because they have the same commitments to the truth that he does, believes that at the very last minute, somebody will say, will want to argue with him about Psalms or Romans, but it doesn't happen. And at that fateful day, and, and historians debate on what his actual words say, but we know what his, we know what his stand was. But this is the, our, our best recollection of what he said. He said, if then I am not convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear rational argument, for I do not believe in the Pope 
or in councils alone, since it has been established that they have often erred and contradicted each other. I am bound by the Bible texts that I have quoted. As long as my conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot do, I cannot, I cannot nor do I want to retract anything when things become doubtful. Salvation will be threatened if you go against your conscience. May God help me. Amen. And we have this famous statement, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I, therefore, I stand. But don't miss what Luther is saying very, very bravely. What Luther is saying is, I stand by these works because in this dealing of the gospel, in, in this dealing with the word of God, the gospel necessary for salvation is laid out. And if we deviate on that, then our souls are in peril. It was a life or death matter for him. And he chose to, to, to live and possibly die, right? He chose, he said, therefore I stand. And so for us, it's the same thing. We stand in, Luther, we stand in Luther's stead. We're on, we, we stand on Luther's shoulders. We believe sola scripture. I believe sola scripture almost all my life. And that statement that we said earlier in the, in the London Baptist Confession is, is clear. It's the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It's life or death. You know how important this principle is? This principle is what gives you confidence that the promise of God is for you that it's certain, that it's infallible, that it's effective, and you can preach it to your loved ones because of the standard of the gospel that is portrayed in this principle of sola scriptura. You jettison that, you jettison that, and you jettison your confidence. Again, the confession says the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of saving knowledge and of faith and obedience. That's what we want to talk about this morning, is we believe that. As a church, we believe that. I believe most of you as individuals probably would stand firm on that. Maybe we wouldn't have the, the, um, the, the fortitude or the intestinal fortitude or the guts that, uh, that a Martin Luther would have to put our life on the line, but many of us if pushed, the Spirit would, would give us that strength to do it, just like the martyrs throughout the Reformation did, like Tyndall and the such. But it's, it's, we believe that. But the question is, is what's that look like in your life? What does that look like in our lives? What's the principle of sola scriptura look like? So our main theme this morning, the main teaching, is the Scriptures are God's gift to mankind, leading us to blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the scriptures are God's gift to mankind, leading us to blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk a little bit about the context, and then our first point is God's gift to us, his words are authoritative, and then secondly, his words lead us to his son, Jesus. And that's our two uh, so we'll talk about context and then those two points and then, then we'll be done. So again, all of this has been said. You've already said it. You've already said it in the responsive reading. You've already sung it. You've already heard it. I just need to not drop the ball in explaining it to you. So 
So again, that's our theme. So pick up in the context. Remember, this is the second missionary journey, approximately 49 to 51 AD. If you're tracking it in your Bible, it's Acts 15, 39 through 18, 22. Uh, remember that what Paul is doing is he started out in Turkey, went through a series of small uh, cities, worked his way west, and then at one point he wanted to go north. The Spirit wouldn't allow him to go north. They, wouldn't, they wanted to go south. Spirit said no, and they went across the Aegean, and they, they plopped down in Europe. They went to Philippi, and we, had, we talked about Philippi for three weeks. Then they went to Thessalonica, and we know that, from, that now after Thessalonica, they're gonna go to Berea, then to Athens, and then Paul is gonna spend about a year and a half in Corinth, and then he's gonna go back to Jerusalem, he's gonna start it all over again. Now, you should be feeling now is because you know the end game here, just like the Gospels. You know, you start reading the Gospels and you begin to feel the intensity as you're working through the Gospels. It starts out simple, it starts out laid back, but it gets intense, right? The, 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 um, the, the, the teaching gets sharper, the responses get sharper, and you begin to see the organization of the opposition, and it be, you begin to get more intense, more intense, more intense. Same thing's happening in Acts. You get through this, second, this uh, second missionary journey, by the time you get to Thessalonica, Thessalonica is the biggest city that they've been to so far, about 50 to 60,000 people, okay? You figure Philippi had about 10,000 people. They're gonna head to Athens, and then they're gonna head to Corinth, and eventually, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul is gonna center around big cities, Ephesus, and then eventually in Rome. And so you, you can feel the intensity, and once you get to the big city, the opposition becomes much more organized, right? The Jews are more organized, the Romans are more organized, the Greeks are more organized, they have, they have stronger rule, and they put up, like we talked about, they put up with disturbances very little, and they have very to low tolerance for that. So the team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, go to Berea. The one thing that I noticed in the, in the text, and you guys may have seen it already, but it's interesting that once they go to Philippi, from that point forward, the churches send people with them as guides. Send people with them as guides or handlers or helping them through. So from Philippi, there are people from Philippi that go along with them to Thessalonica. From Thessalonica, there are brothers at Thessalonica that take them to Berea, probably to guide them there or maybe even to make introductions. And then the same thing happens at Berea. Brothers go with them to Athens, go with Paul to the sea, and then with Timothy and Silas, and they all meet up at, a at Athens. Some of those brothers in, in the second missionary journey, or in the third missionary journey, are named. Certain brothers from Berea, certain brothers from Thessalonica. But they go because they have a vested interest in the Apostle Paul's ministry. But they find themselves in the synagogue. And remember in the synagogue, the ministry Joe talked a little bit about last week. They're reasoning from the scriptures about the identity of Christ. And so you really, there are two things happening in this, in this discussion. First of all, they're talking about the Old Testament predictions of Messiah. And there are strains of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, right? You have Moses' great prophet, and there's a strain of Moses' great prophet through the um, 39 books of the Old Testament. There's Daniel's son of man, and there's a strain of that thought process through. You've got um, David's son, and you've got that strain. 
You've got the wisdom of Solomon and the reigning. You've got that strain of wisdom. And then you have Isaiah's strain of the suffering servant. And you've got all of those strains. And what happens is in that synagogue ministry, they begin to bring all of those to focus on Jesus. So the identity of Jesus is, is what they're talking about a lot. But secondly, they're talking about the cross. And the Jews had difficulty with that, right? Remember Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, we preach, cross, we preach the cross, Christ crucified, to the Jew, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, or, or to the Romans, foolishness, right? So why was it a stumbling block? Well, it was a stumbling block, I believe, primarily because they didn't want a dead Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah that was executed on a tree. Everything that, everybody that dies on a tree is cursed. They didn't want a cursed Messiah. They didn't want a dead Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah that would bring them into power so they could argue about who would be first in his kingdom. That's what they were looking for. And so when they, you become and you bring a gospel of a dead Messiah, they want to argue with you because that doesn't fit in their paradigm. It doesn't fit in their pre-agreed, their, their presuppositions, the way they're thinking about their religion and their tradition and what their parents taught them and what they were looking forward to in the future. It was a different kind of gospel, a different kind of Messiah. And so that's what they're talking about in the, in, in the synagogues, is who Jesus is, how everything points to him, and then the fact that he had to die and that he had to be he had to be raised from the dead. And so they're in the synagogues having this ministry. Now, we've, we're told that Paul and Apollos are very good at it. They're very good at it. Very few people can answer them. Very few people can answer Paul. Paul has spent 11 years in, in Damascus and Arabia going back over the scriptures that he had memorized and becoming very clear on who Jesus was, and he has to be saying, hey, how did I miss it? How does anybody miss it? How can anybody miss it? It's so clear. They go into the synagogues, and there's really three responses, right? There are those that believe. There are those that listen and are attracted, but don't believe right away. They want to talk more about it. And then third, there's a group that gets angry, they get angry, they're challenged, they get angry, and it leads to violence, just like with Jesus, right? Just like when Jesus taught. Remember, if you remember the passage where, uh, where Jesus is being attacked by the, the lawyers, and at some point he says to them, if we're going to talk of questions, he says, what about Psalm 110? David's talking to his son, right? Yeah. And he calls him my Lord. So how can David call his son his Lord? Because we're Jews, right? The father is greater than the son. And so how can this, how can David call his son my Lord? And it says from that point forward, they stopped asking him questions. The next verse says, and they determined to kill him. So how do the Jews respond to this message? They can't meet it. They can't argue it. They can't win it, so they kill it. And that's the pattern that we see in the, throughout the scripture. So they're forced out of Thessalonica. They're going down Achaia. They find themselves at Berea in a different ruling province, but very close to Mount Olympus. 
So you could, they're getting down into uh, the Greek heartland. So the, the first point is God's gift to us, his words are authoritative, the only standard for spiritual truth. Notice Luke's comment. Luke says, the, the Berean, around Berean nobility. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now the word noble is gonna be they're more outstanding, they're more exemplary, they're more virtuous. They were a cut above the normal synagogue hearer. They were more noble. And it gives, it gives us three things to show their nobility. They received the word with all eagerness. That means they heard well, kind of like Lydia, right? It says the Lord opened her heart and she received. They received the word, they heard it, they were eager to hear it. They were eager to hear Paul wax eloquent on the Psalms and wax eloquent on Habakkuk and wax eloquent on Isaiah, and wax eloquent on the words of Moses. They were eager to hear the Bible being preached. But not only that, but it says they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Think of that examination as like a judicial examination. Kind of like when you're buying a piece of property and, and the lawyers do a title search. They do a very meticulous evaluation of the title to make sure you have a clear title so that you can buy it and that you're not at risk. Think of that. These Jews were being very critical, very careful in examining. And how often were they doing it? Were they just doing it on Sunday when, when this, during the discussion of the law? How often were they doing it? Daily. So it was something, their eagerness and their relentlessness, relentlessness, it was important. They examined the scriptures daily to see if they were so, if, if these things were so. Then it says, many of them therefore believed. So the Bereans are noble because they listen to the message, they interact with the message, and they examine carefully the message, and many of them believe. They're not being commended because they're gullible. They're not being commended because they just receive anything and any new word. They're being commended because they are discerning. And they're also being, they're also more noble because in discerning, you have to evaluate a message and you have to evaluate a message by, the stand, by a standard. And what's the standard they're using? What's the standard they're using? They're using the scriptures. And so Luke says they're more noble because they were true to their commitment. They were Jews. They had Psalm 1. They had Psalm 19. They had Psalm 119. They had Moses. They had the words of God. They were committed. Their presuppositions were strong, right? They were committed to preserving and living by meticulously the words of God. But you can see that the Bereans really lived that out. They were, in, they were in submission to the scriptures. They believed by searching the scriptures that the answers would come to them and that they would be able to define whether Paul and Silas and Timothy were right or whether this was something to be stamped out. Now notice the statement noble is they were more noble. So it's a comparison. 
They are being compared with the Thessalonian synagogue attenders. They're more noble than they. And you think about them, they, these, those who respond with anger and with pushback, they were fully submissive, at least by creed, to the word of God, but yet they weren't acting like that, right? They weren't living like that. They were opposing the message when the message came to it. They were committed to the word in their own version, right? Now we know historically people and the enemy continually fight against the authority of God. From the very beginning, hath God really said? I mean, there is that fight against authority. And sometimes it's clearly, and it's open, and it's explicit. But a lot of times it's implicit, right? It's more like compartmentalizing, minimalizing, cherry-picking, kind of manipulating, rationalizing, making God's word kind of attainable and fit kind of your world and kind of your life and your expectations and your power grid and how you want to live life and manipulating the scriptures. And that's what they did. That's what they did. They had taken the law of God and they had molded it down to what they thought it should be. And ultimately, they became like the practical atheist. Are you familiar with that term, practical atheist? It's that idea of there are people who say that there's a God and they, it's their creed, they live it. Like some of us, we can sit in the pew and we can sing it and we can celebrate it and we can stand firm for it. But then when we walk away, we live as if there is no God. We live as if the, Lord, the word of God has no, no, we have no accountability to it. We don't need it. We don't, we're not directed by it. We're not corrected by it. We're not instructed by it. When somebody brings us our, our behavior and compares it to the word of God, we fight against it and we rationalize it and we minimalize it. And we do the same thing that the Thessalonian synagogue dwellers do, right? Is we don't live quorum Deo. Quorum Deo is that idea made famous by, by R.C. Sproul and Ligonier of living before the watchful eye of God. Do we, are we Berean? Are we like the Thessalonian synagogue dwellers? Do we take seriously Sola Scriptura? What's it look like in our life? You know, what does Psalm 1 say? Psalm 1 said, and I blew this in the first, in the first uh, service, but Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or sits in the seat of the scorner, or stands in the way, and I, that's where I messed it up last time too. But you can, you can look it up. But the point is, is it's the inputs. Blessed is the man who rejects these inputs, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does meditate day and night. You think about that. What does that look like in life? What does that look like in life? A couple of months ago, I was, um, there was a situation in my life where lots of people at work, and there was some transition going on, and I thought there might be an opportunity to exit or a reason to exit, and there were other opportunities, and I was thinking through it, and I was wrestling through it of what was really important to me and everything, and I'm, I'm, I'm praying for guidance. And a little voice of conscience says, Scott, 
if I gave you guidance, would you even recognize it? And I, I, was, I was cut to the quick of saying, hey, I'm asking for guidance, and yet I'm not going to the word and seeking the guidance that you've already given me. Is that your life? Are, are, are you so separated from the word of God that God's words can be easily marginalized, easily manipulated, easily compartmentalized? You can cherry pick what you want and you can feel good about it because you're so far distant from the word of God that you're just like a practical atheist. You're just like a practical rejecter of everything the Reformation stands for. You might talk about it. You might wear the t-shirt. You might have a bumper sticker on your car. You might have a plaque in your house. And you may have a stack of Bibles. Or you might have a whole bookcase of books about the Bible like I do. But are you personally living Psalm 1? Are you personally submissive to the Word of God? Are you living Coram Deo? Think about the greater knowledge that we have. Greater not, with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. We have 2 Timothy 3.16 about the inspiration of Scripture and that Scripture has all authority and it's God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Pardon my King James. We have 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Think about the words of Jesus. Remember when, in, in probably the, the most difficult temptation of his life before Gethsemane, he's, he's being tempted by Satan. Remember, he's hungry 40 days, 40 nights, and Satan comes to him and says, you know, you're God. Can't, you're God's chosen one. Just make the, make the stones bread and eat. Why are you hungry? Take advantage of the privilege of being who you say you are. And what's Jesus say? He says, Man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, which is a very rich passage that you should go back and look at. But the point that Jesus is making is, is that he is, his conscience is captive to the word of God and to the mission of God for his life, regardless of his personal pain, and personal price. Are you Berean? Is that your aspiration? Or are you, a, are you a closet Thessalonian synagogue unbeliever? Good question for us all. And it, was, it should humble us all because none of us are where we want to be. Spurgeon says, the Bible searches, the Bible searchers are the peers of heaven Noble in their aims, noble in their spirit, noble in their conduct, noble in thought and principles. God demands that you search the scriptures. Point number two, leading us to Jesus. God's message is to listen to his beloved son. Remember that at transfiguration, remember at baptism, the God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. It's in all three, it's in three of the gospels, right? The, what's the point of his ministry? What's God the Father say to us? Hear him. The Bible is about Jesus. 
It's not about religious experience. It's not about self-help. It's not about helping you develop a cooler or an easier moralistic approach to life. It's not about inspirational messages for plaques. It's not about greeting card statements. It's about Christ. The purpose of the scripture is to lead us to Christ. Just think through a couple, a couple of passages and I'll, I'll read them to you. John 1.45, when Jesus is being introduced to his disciples, it says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Remember in John chapter five, when Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Later in the passage, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, and that's Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And then think of that, probably the, the, the best passage on this idea of Christ being the center of scripture is remember the uh, passage in Luke where after the, after the resurrection, the risen Christ meets with some disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And it says that that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And on the way, they were talking and they were having a discussion. Jesus comes up to them and says, what is this conversation? What are you, what are you talking about? And they stood looking at him and they said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what has happened there in these days? And then he said to him, what, th what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning and they did not find his body. They came back saying that that they'd had a vision of angels who said to them that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, and they did not, and they did, but they still did not see. And he said to, or the body they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the scriptures lead us to Christ. The scriptures, the God the Father witnesses to it. Jesus in his ministry throughout says he, he opens the scroll in Nazareth and he reads and he says, this day, this, this is fulfilled in your hearing. John the Baptist pointed to him. The apostles point to him. All of his works point to him as being, the thought, as being the focus of Scripture. And if that doesn't get you, the resurrection should. Right? He is the center point of history, the center point of the Scripture. All of God's words 
collected, put together, points you to Christ. We must see that. Just like when the Apostle Paul goes out to the synagogues, he teaches them from the scriptures that Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the chosen one. Christ is the one to believe. Understanding that leads us to acknowledgement, to faith, and commitment. You know, in that famous passage in 2 Timothy 3, Paul's talking to Timothy just before the inspiration, he talks about inspiration, and he says this. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We are to read and study and go to the scriptures and it draws us to Christ. All of the Bible stories, all of the history draws us to Christ. Parents, God's gift to you for the salvation of your children is the Bible stories. It's the stories. It's what's really going on when, when Moses is saved in the, in the bulrushes. What's really going on when Daniel is in the fiery furnace? What's, or in the, the lion's den? It's Meshach and Abednego, that, they're the ones in the, in the furnace. What's really going on at Jericho? What's really going on with David and Goliath? What's really going on? Those stories are rich, they're our heritage. They are there for us to be saying, God, this is how God protected his promises to Abraham. This is how he protected the line of Abraham. This is how he protected and prepared for the Messiah. It's all about Jesus, it's all about Christ. So as we go to the scriptures, we should be drawn to him. We should be, we should be brought, drawn magnetically to him or we're not rightly thinking of the scriptures. We're not rightly hearing them. And we're just like the, uh, the Thessalonian unbelieving synagogue hearers, right? We're hearing it all and it's all a jumble and we don't know which way to go and we're not following the standard and we don't see that it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. So don't miss that, that it, this leads us to Jesus. It's God's message to his beloved son. Now remember, the scriptures bring you to the feet of Jesus. You've got to do business with Jesus, right? You've got to do business. You have to, I have to, because God has blessed, has given us Jesus with open arms and with invitation. He's the humble one. He's the suffering servant. But remember, he's also the one. Who has God given judgment to? Who's the judge on the last day that everyone will stand in front? Who's that judge? It's Jesus, because God has given him the judgment of the nations. So like the psalmist says in Psalm 2, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And that's a warning to us. There's, we're at a time where salvation is freely offered. That's not forever. There is a time, there is a day when all of judgment will come and justice will be meted out in a way that we can't even hardly imagine. 
So we need to be Berean in spirit. Again, the scripture is God's gift to mankind, leading us to blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go, I want you to think of these words. And they're the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, the, and beat on that house, but it didn't fail because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell and it was, it was great was the fall of it. So, so who are you? Berean, building your house on the rock? Being in, being in reality or attempting to be in reality what you say you are in, in, in by, by creed? Or are you building your house on sand? Taking the word of God, molding it to your life, taking what you like, being like a Jefferson, right? Cutting out everything you don't want. Is that your style? Are you, are you doing that? You might be doing it overtly. Maybe you're just doing it, hey, you know, plucking out right eyes and cutting off right hand. That can't be real. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go on. You know, sin can't be that important, you know? Think, think about this. You go to Philippians and you read, be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and thanksgiving to God. Is that just a platitude? Is that just a suggestion? Is that just inspiration? Or is that God's word to you? And is your conscience captive to that word? Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Is that God's word? Are you accountable? Is your conscience captive to that? Or, or are you like me and you find ways to squirrel out of it? Hey, I'm not ready. You know, I got to deal with things. Uh, yeah. Yada, 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 right? Are you Berean? Or are you not? And what's your aspiration? And at the end of the day, don't miss Christ. He kept the law for you. He is the word. The book of Hebrews, you've got to, the whole book of Hebrews is it starts out by saying, God has given us a superior revelation in Jesus. And then he's given us a superior sacrifice. He's given us a superior temple. He's given us a superior high priest. He's given us a superior to Solomon, one better than Moses, one better than David. He's given us one who is great. If you walk away, there is no other sacrifice coming. Jesus is all we need. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to you that you don't leave us alone, but you give us the spirit, you give us the gifts, you give us your word, and you give us Jesus. We would just pray that you would help us to be very clear in what we believe and that you would help us to be very clear in what we aspire to do, to do and to be and that we would do your words and not merely hear your words. I thank you for this congregation and for the testimony of this congregation and I would just pray that you would encourage us all through your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen.